0: This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Demolition has begun for a $300 million, 8.5-acre mixed-use development north of TQL Stadium. Some residents whose homes sit in the project's footprint are facing difficult decisions as a result. Joining me now to discuss that story and other important news in Cincinnati and Hamilton County this week are WVXU General Assignment Reporter Nick Sportsell. Welcome back, Nick. Hey, Lucy. How's it going? Going well. And WVXU local government reporter, Becca Costello. Thanks for being here, Becca. Thanks, Lucy. Nick, I want to start with you. You had this story this week about some West End residents and a West End business owner who are in the footprint of this development. First, remind us about what's planned for this development and who's behind it.
1: Yeah. So this is a, a development by FC Cincinnati, which, uh, you know, built TQL Stadium just to the south of uh, this part of the West End, which is like right along Central Parkway and south of Liberty Street. So it's a, you a know, few blocks. Uh, and they want to do a $300 million mixed-use development, as you said, that would include a, a sort of marquee hotel, like a big – well, I don't know about marquee, but a big deal hotel. Um, some apartments, uh, some restaurants, uh, maybe some office space, uh, kind of like a whole district is what they're planning.
0: Mm. And tell us now tell us about the people you met. I want to start with Earl Brown. What's his connection to the area?
1: So Earl Brown owns a building uh, that is in the footprint. Uh, it's a, it's a multi-unit uh, uh, residential building. Uh, he's owned it since the 80s, so he's owned it for about 40 years, and he lives in the top two floors of that building.
0: And he told you this development feels inevitable. Let's, let's hear a little bit of sound from him.
1: It was inevitable that the West End was going to
0: be redeveloped, like it or not. Makes no difference, whether it's Chicago, Omaha, Kansas City, Tucson, places i live,
1: that's what's going to happen.
0: He What did he say about what's planned for this and, and whether he's planning to move?
1: Yeah. So I think a, a little bit of important context here is uh, Earl was born in the West End, grew up in the West End, moved away, saw some other places and came back. So he's seen a lot of change over the years in the West End. You know, he, he predates the, the highway. So he saw the highway come through. Mm. Um, and he's seen some other things. He mentioned uh, uh, Laurel Holmes coming down as as one of the big changes uh, right near him. Um, And so he has seen a lot of change, and he is uh, pretty philosophical about it. He he says, you know, these things happen. This is kind of like the nature of neighborhoods they change, and especially urban neighborhoods downtown, near downtown, are going to kind of go through these cycles. Um, So he, I think, is just kind of thinking about... uh, you know, what can we do to preserve the history of the West End the way it was? And the, he talked about culture a lot. He's got a lot of like sort of like artifacts from the West End in his apartment. And he, he, he loves the neighborhood. But in terms of what's coming, he's he's, a, you know, accepting of the fact that it's going to change. Mm.
0: You talked with another property owner, Nikki Ramey, who has a very different reaction to all this. We've got some sound for her. Let's let's hear what she had to say. I don't want to move. I have no intention of moving. To be truly honest about it, I mean, why would I move? So they can have what I got?
1: No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not doing that.
0: So tell us about her and and what she a little bit more about what she thinks about all this.
1: Yeah, so Remy told me she really loves the West End and loves this part of the West End and and um you know not to put too fine a point on it but loved it more before the stadium came. There were more families around, there were more uh, people in the general area, uh, and she says that she wants to stay because this is her neighborhood and she's she's not gonna just let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know that's that's a. That's a perspective that's a little bit different than Earl's. The two of them are friends. They get along. They're not, like, arguing about it. But I think he's thinking more about his grandkids and his family, and she's thinking more about this is where I want to be. You
0: also talked to the owner of a used tire business. We've talked about his um, situation a little bit on this show. What are his concerns?
1: Well, he's uh, he's run this business for about six years now. It's a it's a prime location, he says. And if you think about sort of where it is, it's you know not that far from seventy five, not that far from seventy one, um, right near downtown. He says he's getting a lot of business people just coming through needing tires. Um, and he's concerned if he moves somewhere else that that it's going to be really hard to rebuild that business.
0: Is it clear what options these people have? These people who have homes or businesses in the footprint of this. This development.
1: So it's it's different. The the team has has said that you know, and they've just pointed out really that uh, they can't force anyone to sell, and they, they don't want to. You know, if uh, you know, if they want to sell their property, if if somebody like Earl or uh, Nikki wants to sell their property, they'll, they'll buy it and they'll fold those properties into the development. If not, they'll build around them and and let them be because you know that's the option uh, for the tire store. The, the situation there is a little different because they are renting that property, and the team has said, "Like, look, we we're not closing on this property until that situation gets sorted out with their landlord. So it's on the landlord to kind of figure out what's going on. And there were two businesses on the property; one has already left. The other, uh, the tire store, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do next.
0: Mm. What are you going to be watching for next with this whole thing?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I want to see who who sticks around and, and who goes, and you know, that's something that's going to be worked out over time. Uh, you know." What what is this new district going to look like? Like, how how many apartments are going to be there? Like, what what price ranges are those going to be at? Who is going to be able to live in those? Um, you know, those are all big questions, I think. All right.
0: Becca, I want to turn to you now. We've talked uh, with you about Cincinnati's residential tax abatement program many times on this program. Mm-hmm. We just had a whole um, discussion about it earlier in the week with, with some some folks, and it was looking like a vote on that uh, plan, this big overhaul that's in the works, might happen this week, but it didn't. Tell us what happened instead.
2: Yeah, so the, the plan was to have an initial vote in committee on Tuesday afternoon and then potentially final passage the next day, Wednesday, on the regularly scheduled council meeting, um, but council members decided they want more public input and they're going to put it off. So um, there was some discussion and actually another amendment, um, so working on a C version, a third version of this ordinance at this point, in committee on Tuesday. And then um, basically they scheduled a couple of evening meetings for uh, not this next week, but the week after, March 13th and 15th, in the evenings to get some more public feedback. Um, and then they're planning now to have an initial vote in committee on March 21st with final passage on the 22nd. And why
0: did Councilmember uh, Jeff Kramerding think it was so important to have these additional meetings?
2: I think it just became clear that the community members still had a lot of questions um, and some concerns about the ordinance. Um, I mentioned there have been several amendments already, so there have been some changes. Um, but there's certainly still some questions and and some concerns um and some of the I will say one of the, the motions that was passed a couple of weeks ago, which I think has already been addressed um on Cincinnati edition, but it, it was basically just some promises that like we know that this program isn't going isn't an anti-poverty program and we promise in the next budget we're gonna put extra money towards some of these other programs. That's really all they can do right now, um, and, and so I think partly it is, this is an education effort as well um, to kind of let folks know here's the kind of bigger picture of what we're planning to do. Um, but, you know, regardless, this this ordinance I think will eventually pass without funding associated to those other programs because that's not what this ordinance is. Mm. Um, and then, you know, community members will have to hope that that will that they'll follow through on that later on. Sure.
0: You mentioned this other amendment. I believe it was related to public transit. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. So it's actually uh, closely related to one of the first amendments that council made, which was there's all this talk about, you know, how can we make residential tax abatements um, incentivize affordable housing? It's not really an affordable housing incentive thing, it's it's mostly for single family homes, but they are eligible for uh, homes with up to four housing units. So think of like a very small apartment building or a duplex, triplex, that kind of thing. So initially, council had added these bonuses to make an abatement more valuable um, if it has two, three, or four units, and then you get the most bonus with four units um, and then kind of on down the line. Um, What uh, was additionally added this week was say, okay, great, that's a bonus. We'll double that bonus if your housing with two, three, or four units is along a public transit line. Mm. That definition is not totally clear yet, Um, It's kind of going to overlap with connected communities, which is the kind of zoning and land use reform that uh, council and the mayor's office are working on. There's not even an ordinance to look at that yet. They're still doing public engagement um, and kind of drafting. But it will similarly – we expect it to relax zoning and parking minimums and things like that along public transit lines. But we don't know the definition yet. It might be these bus rapid transit lines that are coming – Uh, the the newer ones that are coming online. It might be uh, bus routes with 24-hour service. It might be something else. Um, But the idea is, you know, if if you've got housing along a transit line, residents there likely don't need a car uh, because they have easy, quick access to public transit. Um, So, uh, as I said, it would double the bonus for that. So an extra $75,000 in abatement value for two units, an extra $150,000 along transit for three units,
0: et cetera. Gotcha. There's also been a lot of talk with this proposal about the impact it could have or might have on Cincinnati public schools. And there was more information on that that the council committee heard about. Tell us what they heard.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit complicated. um, But well, it all is. I don't know why I even bother saying that. It's all complicated. (laughs) So basically, and and to remind folks, the concern is that an abatement means that some tax revenue is or some tax uh, taxable value is forgiven, basically, or foregone. And a lot of property tax revenue goes to Cincinnati public schools. So anytime you get an abatement, theoretically, there's some funding that isn't going to public schools that would have otherwise. Now, the counter argument to that is, well, it's an incentive program, um, so you're not actually losing out on revenue because if you didn't have the incentive, the new value wouldn't have been added otherwise. So that's sort of the basis for that. The way that... um, City administration tried to further analyze what impact this might have. Is they looked at all of the tax abatements that have already been approved throughout the whole city and said, "What if we took the um, new, the proposed new requirements and applied them to the current tax abatements? That means that neighborhoods or abatements in neighborhoods like Hyde Park, Oakley, Mount Adams, those sort of top tier, higher income neighborhoods, um, they would be they would get less value and they would get it for a shorter amount of time." Applying those rules, um, the estimate is that CPS revenue would increase by about $1.3 million a year. So the idea is the new rules would um, mean an increase in tax revenue for CPS. There are all kinds of caveats to this. Um, One important thing is that there is no plan to apply the proposed new rules to current abatements. If anybody has an abatement now, they're going to be under the same rules no matter what changes. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is a potential point of confusion. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's you know, CPS uh, or the, the teachers union, rather, you know, has said that CPS loses out on six to seven million dollars a year with these abatements. Um, this analysis is basically saying, you know, it wouldn't be as bad um, under or wouldn't lose as much revenue under the proposed changes.
0: But this impact on schools is really difficult to measure,
2: isn't it? It's, it's impossible to measure. I mean, to be frank, it's almost impossible, um, you know, because you have to you have to really decide on a case-by-case basis, would, would someone have put $500,000 of improvements into their home if they didn't have an abatement? If they would have done it anyway, then yes, CPS is losing out on that revenue. And so is the library and the zoo and every other levy, uh, the city, uh, whatever, all, the, all of the levies, they're all losing out on that revenue. But if the homeowner isn't going to put $500,000 of, of improvements into their home without an abatement then it's basically just breaking even, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for the short term, there's no no impact on taxes. Um, it, it's never taking away from what CPS is already getting, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's not even part of the discussion. But for a certain period of time, you don't get the added value, uh, the, the, the revenue for the added value. Mm-hmm. The other thing to keep in mind in the argument is, okay, the, the abatements are not permanent. they are always time limited um, and the proposed changes would give a much, much shorter time period in those wealthier neighborhoods, five years in some cases versus fifteen years in some other neighborhoods. Um, so it is a pretty uh, significant reduction in value for um, some homeowners. And what that means is it's a pretty significant increase in revenue for all of the folks that get revenue, including CPS.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're running short on time with with you both, but I want to take just a, a minute or two to talk trash with you, Becca. And <laughs> my that favorite is, thing, yeah. Uh, and we're we're live, so be careful. Um, <laughs> a draft of Hamilton County's next solid waste plan is ready for public feedback. Uh, You've got a lot of detail about this on our website, wvxu.org. What I want to hone in on, there seems to be this emphasis on reducing food waste. Can Mm -hmm. you talk about why that is?
2: Yeah, so the Ohio EPA recommends prioritizing some category of waste. Like basically, this is our target for reduction, although the the goal is to reduce all waste categories. Um, So the Hamilton County Resource, um, who's managing this plan, chose food because it makes up about 15 percent of the waste stream. And that's true for both residential and commercial, and commercial is kind of the bigger chunk of waste um, concern. But not only is it kind of a significant chunk of waste, there's also apparently just not a lot of infrastructure in place to deal with food waste. Um, Individual households can compost. There are some, like, community um, kind of composting things, but there's not, like, big infrastructure like you think of for recycling plastics and other kinds of things. So... Their hope, and and one thing in the plan, is to commission a study with about $150,000 to look at some kind of large-scale food scrap composting. And that would likely or or potentially, I suppose, be a public-private partnership with some kind of facility that the county could um, support but not necessarily own and operate. Um, And so basically try to beef up the infrastructure for composting um, uh, food waste Mm -hmm. in the county.
0: Well, I would encourage everyone to look for your story on WVXU.org. You have information in there about how the public can weigh in on all this, too. So Please do. Check it out, listeners. I've been talking with WVXU General Assignment Reporter Nick Swartzell and WVXU Local Government Reporter Becca Costello. Thank you both so much for your time today.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks,
0: Lucy. Up next, we'll hear how a Kentucky Republican who's running for governor wants to legalize medical marijuana in the state. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. A Kentucky Republican who's running in the party's crowded primary for governor says the state needs to pass medical marijuana legislation, excuse me, and do that in a way that will benefit Kentucky farmers. Joining me now to discuss that story and other news from Frankfurt is Link NKY politics and government reporter Mark Payne. Welcome back, Mark.
3: Thanks for having me, Lucy.
0: Well, thanks for being here. So as I mentioned, Kentucky Agriculture Commissioner uh, Ryan Quarles, who's a Republican candidate for governor, he says he'll pass medical marijuana if elected. Tell us a bit about his proposal.
3: Yeah, so uh, he pitched his idea on the front of the Capitol steps on Tuesday. He said that if elected governor, he would pass medical marijuana, um, essentially saying it's time to pass a responsible you know, a piece of legislation that helps benefit patients across Kentucky. Um, And he said he would work with the legislature uh, to do that, to pass a bill. Um, Of course, his pitch is part of his plan to present a bold idea, as he called it, um, every week until the Republican gubernatorial primary is on May 16th. Um, yeah, so that's what he was doing. He was pitching his plan and said he supports medical marijuana.
0: Okay, and he says he wants his proposal to benefit farmers. It sounds like he's trying to uh, differentiate himself a bit from Governor Andy Bashir. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's precisely what he's doing. So the medical marijuana issue in Kentucky has been quite complicated, um, the legislature has failed to pass any type of legislation the past um, couple of sessions. Last year, they had a very bare bones medical marijuana bill that passed the house but failed in the senate. Um, just didn't even make it to a committee vote. Um, so Governor Bashir, uh, like, and then in the middle of the year, said he was going to consider executive action, and he sent a uh, a group around the state getting feedback from uh, citizens and Kentuckians, um, kind of on how they, what they thought about medical marijuana. And so late last year, he passed an executive action that essentially said, I am going to allow folks in Kentucky who have small amounts of, um, Kentuckians can have small amounts of marijuana as long as they have like, uh, a condition like, uh, glaucoma or some other type of debilitating disease where medical marijuana would benefit them. Now, a lot of Republicans say that, you know, they don't think that he should do that. Ryan Quarles, um, in his announcement on Tuesday said that Governor Bashir's executive action essentially kind of muddied the waters and his executive plan his executive order also doesn't benefit farmers. He really wasn't clear on how It doesn't benefit farmers. Um, And so Coral said that if elected governor, he would pass legislation that essentially does three three things. Um, It would create a dialogue between patient and doctor. Um, It would, um, it should be tax-free. You know, if it's a medicine, if medical marijuana is being used as some type of, for medicinal purposes, he doesn't think it should be taxed. And then he said it would benefit farmers. He said Bashir's executive order doesn't do that. Again, not for sure exactly, how Bashir's order doesn't do that or how uh, Corals plan um you know would do that but you know Correll's has served as the agricultural commissioner and perhaps he has a, a better vision for that um he's been pretty um instrumental in the state's uh, hemp program um and so yeah he thinks that um with his knowledge um, from the agricultural community, community that he could help uh, farmers benefit from any uh, potential uh, cannabis legislation.
0: Mm, maybe he's thinking that farmers could legally grow it in Kentucky and and make some money that way. Um, does Ryan Quarles? Does this position that he's taken really set him apart um, among and in, in this crowded primary field among other Republicans?
3: Um, that's a good question. You know, some of them have. Ha- haven't really been clear on that. Um, it's a huge topic in Kentucky right now. And I think it's something that Governor Bashir is banking on, you know, uh, you know, being a big topic heading into the election. And he thinks Kentucky voters will be like, Hey, you know what? I passed this executive order, you know, and vote, vote for me, the Republican legislature isn't doing anything. Um, and so perhaps quarrels is, is attempting to kind of steal some of the, that, you know, I wouldn't say thunder, but, you know, steal some of that audience and say, look, I'm for medical marijuana too. Um, yeah. Governor just, Bashir, go ahead. Lisa, oh, no. Sorry. No,
0: I was just going to say, yeah. just kind of yeah. stand apart from the crowd a little bit because it's a, there's, a, there are a lot of people running that Republican primary.
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, it seems like polling seems like medical marijuana is very popular in Kentucky. Um, And it could be something that sets himself apart. And it was a great way to get headlines this week. Um, You know, he announced that he was going to make a big announcement. And, of course, when you're a reporter and you get that email from a a press agent that says, hey – this candidate is going to make a big announcement. You think two things. You think, A, that they're going to drop out, or B, that they are going to announce their running mate. Mm. Um, and so he, you know, certainly that was a very strategic move on his part to get headlines across the the state this week. Um, and then, of course, he said he's going to release an idea um, every week until the primary on... May 16th, and I think Tuesday was 76 days out. So I think we're about 73 days out from the election. Um, so it was certainly a, a strategic part on his uh, communications staff to get his name out there. Um, and then, of course, um, in early January, uh, some reports came out, some fundraising reports that showed that um, agricultural com- uh, corals wasn't doing as well um, raising money in the first quarter. So perhaps that you know, added into their decision-making as well. Mm.
0: Well, I also want to take a few minutes talking with you about another important story you had this week. Kentucky's facing major problems in its juvenile justice system. Tell us about this House Bill 3 and what it's designed to do to really try to address those problems.
3: Yeah, so House Bill 3 is just one piece of legislation that's moving through the legislature this session that would address the juvenile justice stuff. Um the chief thing that that bill would do is give 19 million to renovate a juvenile justice facility in Louisville or Jefferson County. Um, and, um, they don't have a facility right now. So there's regional facilities across Kentucky. Um, ever since there's been reports that have kind of came out that there's been issues in the juvenile justice system. Um, Governor Bashir has made some um, changes to where he shifted the, uh, the facility in Campbell County to an all-female facility. Uh, he's made some facilities specifically for uh, offenders that have committed serious crimes, such as murder or robbery, things of that nature. Um, so this bill would give $19 million to to uh, the facility in Louisville. Um, Northern Kentucky Representative Kim Moser, she is the chair of the Health Services Committee. And one of the things that she... Um, she introduced an amendment to this bill that was added that would add a mental health uh, component to the bill. So, if a a youth is detained, they would um, essentially be able to talk to a counselor or a psychiatrist and get kind of a mental uh, behavioral health evaluation, um, a substance a substance use evaluation. So that way, they could help the youth, you know, get the mental help that they needed. Um, yeah, so those are the big things in that bill.
0: Okay. What would this bill mean for youths charged with these serious felony crimes and for their records?
3: Yeah. So the first thing it would do was hold, it would hold these youths for 48 hours. Um, so if they're detained, they would automatically get like a hold. Um, opponents of that said, you know, they don't want these youth to be attained, uh, uh, contained for that long. Um, and then the other component is the records portion. And so uh, their records would be available for up to three years after they committed the crime. Um, and opponents say, you know, we, we don't think that their record should be available because it could potentially harm them from changing their life. Mm.
0: And what are mental health advocates saying about this, this bill as it stands now?
3: Well, mental health advocates were really happy to hear about the component uh, that Kim Moser introduced. They think that, you know, uh to detained should have some type of mental health, you know, help in the system. Um, and um, But they weren't too happy about the open record stuff. So they don't think, you know, the open records could potentially harm them, potentially, you know, uh, prevent them from turning their life around
0: yeah what's next with this legislation
3: um that would be a good point uh, it passed <laughs> the house um and then it, it should head to the senate soon um and i'm not for sure where it's at exactly today um it was quite a busy week down here in frankfurt and there was some <laughs> other uh legislation that passed like trans legislation things like that so it was a um a busy week here at the legislature but um yeah, so it should head to the Senate and we'll see where it goes from there.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that there are some other bills that are kind of um, in the works to try to address juvenile justice too. Do you the, do you see them all kind of on similar tracks in terms of passage or, or consideration?
3: Yeah, some of them have been discussed. Uh, one of the things that the Senate, um, the Senate created a resolution to create a work group um, to uh, kind of study the Department of Juvenile Justice um, so some of these bills are, are moving. There's going to be more money spent on this. There's going to be more legislation. This is something that's really important for legislators. Um, this session, especially Republican legislators, they think that this is an area that Governor Andy Bashir has failed at. Um, and so I think that that's something that they'll hope to be using to kind of attack him in the upcoming uh, governor's election. Um, so, yeah, the bills are moving a lot. A lot is being discussed, and it's a big topic here in Frankfurt.
0: Yeah, well, I know you're juggling a lot of big topics, and you've had a very busy week, so I I feel like I should let you get back to your day job. I've been talking with Link NKY politics and government reporter Mark Payne. Thank you so much for your time today, Mark.
3: Thanks for having me, Lucy.
0: Up next, we've got some education news updates, and we'll educate you about the wacky weather we had last month. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. If you've been thinking something felt a little bit different about the last month, you're right. Today we're going to talk about one of the warmest Februarys on record. But before we get educated about just how weird our February was, we're going to catch up on some of the most important education-related news of the past week. Joining me now to do all of that our WVXU reporter Zach Carrion. Thanks for being here, Zach.
4: Hey, good to be here
0: and WCPO9 meteorologist, Brandon Spinner. Welcome, Brandon. Um,
5: Thanks for having me.
0: We're so glad you're here. Zach, let's start by talking about um, a story you wrote regarding UC. You were at the University of Cincinnati Board of Trustees meeting Tuesday where some students were demonstrating. Tell us about their concern.
4: Yeah. So the group was the Young Democratic Socialists of America at UC, um, a campus organization there. Um, and basically what they were um, they're demonstrating for was the the issue of housing, right? It's been an issue at UC for, for some time now, some years. Um, And and basically what they were saying is is they're kind of reaching a breaking point here. Uh, The University of Cincinnati has been increasing enrollment every single year for about the past 10 years, right? Um, And at this point, they are at almost uh, 48,000 students. That is um, up 3,000 students. in since uh, 2017. Hmm. So um, they've seen a lot of growth recently. Um, That's good for the university, that's good for the revenue for sure. The problem is uh, it's creating a, a lot of limited housing options for students And uh, this group was asking them to say, hey, um, you're going to have to slow down enrollment. You're going to have to decrease the amount of students you're bringing into this university. Growth is good, sure, but um, it has to be natural growth. It has to be gradual. And and, um, frankly, they're saying the area is not ready for that type of growth.
0: What has UC been doing related to housing? I mean, it's no secret that there's been a shortage for some time now. What did the university say it's been doing to try to deal with this?
4: Well, they're doing a couple different things. Um, one thing that they're doing is renovating their um, on-campus dormitories. Um, Calhoun Hall was renovated this past year, opened up um, before... Uh, um, this spring semester in January, uh, they add uh, some more beds, some more rooms in there because of the renovation. So Calhoun Hall was one of their their biggest dormitories. Um, and so renovating that made a big difference. Um, but also uh, nearby uh, Siddall Hall, um, they are currently renovating that one now trying to get more beds, more rooms in for students to live on, on campus housing. Um, but they're also really counting on the private market. They're They're counting on development to um, really hit its stride and start providing off-campus private housing for students. Uh, the problem is it's it's not really happening fast enough. Um, and, and because of that, that's created some issues. Um, students, frankly, are not able to get on-campus housing if it's not their first year, if they're not incoming freshmen. And um, when they have to choose uh, what off-campus housing options they have, it's it's limited. And not only is it limited, it's pretty expensive.
0: Yeah. What was President Pinto's reaction to all this? You see, President uh, Pinto, what did he? How did he respond to the students and their concerns?
4: Well, he acknowledged it, it's a concern for sure, um, but he says it's the duty of the university as a public institution to continue growing, to continue offering. Uh, educational opportunities to students and um, just kind of grow that um, education community. Uh, It's been really important for him. Um, There has been exponential growth at this university since he took over in 2017. Um, That's been part of his agenda is to continue to grow this university. Um, But, you know, the students are saying you have to decide whether you're going to prioritize incoming students over existing students. Um, once students live on campus, um, they're not guaranteed a spot with UZ housing after that. If you're an incoming freshman, you're guaranteed either on-campus housing or campus housing that's off-campus. Once that's over, once that first year is over, you're kind of on your own as far as um, what's guaranteed to you. So um, students are asking for, you know, um, payment. They want um, seven thousand dollars a year. Um, to cover the cost of living expenses if they can't live on campus and and they just um they they uh, uh they just want to um just just slow things down because housing has become a real issue here. Yeah, Well,
0: and it sounds like from your reporting, the students are saying this is more than a housing problem, that this has mental health consequences. And that extends beyond students, even, you know, non-UC residents, people around are, are feeling this housing crunch. Did you hear that from students?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you have to look for off-campus and private housing options, some of those options aren't going to be great, you know. And especially if you're on a limited budget, if you're a college student and you don't have a ton of money. You can't put uh, a ton of, of of your funds towards, uh, you know, expensive housing that's a little bit nicer. Um, sometimes you have to look for different options. And there's only a limited amount of space near that campus in the Clifton area. So um, they're concerned about um, more students coming in and pushing the existing residents out of that area. So this is a problem that's affecting the the spots around campus. But eventually this could bleed into other parts of the cities and surrounding neighborhoods. Mm.
0: And so, what's the next step for students? It sounds like they've got something else—something else in the works.
4: Yeah, they have a petition um, out right now with the with the list of their demands. Uh, once again, that uh, compensation for housing, um, but they want to put a freeze on um, the the cost of uh, their campus housing. So they want to freeze costs. They want to. Um, limit the amount of incoming students. And specifically, this is out-of-state and international students. Um, That's been a priority for the university to help it grow, bring in international students and and out-of-state students. And that's great for the university, that's great for the revenue for sure, but they say, hey, let's focus on students that are in the Cincinnati area, in the tri-state area, students who don't necessarily have to move and move into this neighborhood to attend this university. That's where they want the focus to be um, the Young Democratic Socialists of America, the group that was uh, at this meeting. Um, They're going to be holding a a meeting uh, March 18th at Baldwin Hall to discuss this issue further um, and continue to organize for this.
0: We said the word freeze several times, which would be a perfect segue to Brandon. But before we talk about our crazy February, I want to ask you about one more education Mm -hmm. story. You covered Cincinnati Public Schools Board meeting this week, too. Tell us about the action the board took related to Senate Bill 1. And I want to remind our listeners, that's the bill that would strip the State Board of Education of of many of its powers.
4: Yeah, so they passed this resolution and, you know... Again, this resolution can't necessarily do a whole lot, um, since it is the state government that ultimately is going to have control over this, Um, but they uh, don't want um, the powers of the State Board of Education to go into the governor's office. I I think some people think that the State Board of Education is is already too political than it really needs to be right now, Um, but going into literally the governor's office and creating a cabinet-level position that would run... Uh, the education system that would be you know, appointed by the governor. They think it would make uh, ed- education more partisan. It would be less democratic and, and people locally wouldn't have as much control over what goes on in local education um, if this goes through. So they passed this resolution. It was passed unanimously by everybody on the board. Um, and we'll see if that has any influence over what uh, happens in the state House,
0: yeah. And did any individual board members kind of speak to the resolution, or do they all just stand behind what was on the on the paper?
4: they They mostly stood behind what was on the paper and they and they kind of made things clear they don't they don't want things to be too partisan. and they they really want um, what happens in Cincinnati schools to go through the school board to go through um, elected representatives that are in the State Board of Education right now,
0: okay. Well, now it is time for us to talk about this ridiculous February we had. Last but not least, our friend Brandon. So a lot of us here in greater Cincinnati waited all through the month of February for it to feel like February. Um, you reported this February was just not at all typical. Tell us why.
5: And no, seventh warmest ever on record. We had three days in the 30s, and that was the first three days of the month. From there, we had three total days that were below average. So 28 days in February. We had 22 that were above average. Uh, Just had a nasty pattern just setting up. Also, we've got uh, the influence of La Nina pattern out into the eastern Pacific Ocean, which we talked about back in August on WCPO.com and how that generally leads to a warmer than normal winter here. And, uh, man, it was pretty brutal warmth yeah,
0: yeah. No, I, I couldn't get, couldn't. My body couldn't figure it out. It'd be cold, warm, cold, warm. You mentioned the seventh warmest February since records have been kept, and records have been kept for a long time. Can yeah. you talk to us about what other years were kind of competing with this in terms of the? The warmest Februarys we've had.
5: Yeah, so this goes back to 1873. That's when records started to be kept. Well, 1872, but it wasn't until May that they started that. Yeah. <laughs> so February of 1872 wasn't included in that. Uh, 1882 finishes the warmest. 2017 was actually the closest uh, we have been with uh, 44 degrees. But we had an average temperature here just about 40.2. 1890, 1930, 1880, 1932. So that's how long ago a lot of these Februarys have been. Most people weren't alive at that point. Uh, So very, very um, weird. And we didn't have any snow either. Yeah.
0: Tell us, talk to us about that. Where was the snow? I usually, I mean, I grew up around here and I think Mm of, oh, yeah, we probably might not have a white Christmas. January is kind of iffy, but, th- but February is when we kind of expect to get walloped around here.
5: Yeah, usually it's 6.7 inches. That's the seasonal average. That's a 30-year average. doesn't mean that that's what we get every year, but that's the, the bar you set. Uh, we had a trace, which means no accumulation, nothing that was measurable, just a dusting maybe on your back patio or porch like that. Uh, we had a lot of rain, but just didn't get cold enough. We had 18 days where we had a 50-degree or hotter temperature, Our average is supposed to be in the low to mid 40s. So just blew it out of the water. Hard to get snow when it's not cold enough, right? 32 degrees.
0: For sure. Well, and we had a 70-plus degree day earlier this week. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the only one of those we had last month. We had some record-breaking temperatures in February, didn't
5: we? Yeah, two that were record breakers. We had one that fell just short by two degrees uh, several days in the 70s. And even March 1st, which would have been February 29th in a leap year, (laughs) Had a 78 degree high temperature, so very abnormal, and that blew the record away from uh, was that Wednesday by seven degrees. So very, very warm, uh, and just ve- like you said, the only good part of it was it helped your heating bill, probably.
0: <laughs> it probably did. Well, okay, and I don't, and I, I feel a little bit guilty because I'm going to spring this on you, but. <laughs> It's like the sky is angry with us today. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so much rain. If it were a lot colder, it'd be a heck of a lot of snow. It would be, yes. What is going on? Why are we just getting walloped with all this rain today?
5: we got a nasty low-pressure system coming in up through the Mississippi River Valley. It's going to bring severe weather here, too. So that's not just the rain we're going to get. We've got a chance at tornadoes. We've got severe winds. I think wind gusts today. We've got a high wind warning as well. So that's outside of the rain and the storms. Just nasty low pressure system, very strong developing. It's got snow up towards Chicago, Northern Indiana. It's got severe weather threats all the way down into Alabama, Tennessee. So brutal.
0: Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> you you talked about this a little bit, but let's talk about our winter overall. It has just been weirdly warm, hasn't yeah, it?
5: Very warm, eighth warmest winter on record, uh, warmest one since 1950. Uh, so that's seventy plus years, seventy three years, and we've had a lack of snow. Uh, obviously, February not having any snow at all is going to limit that. But we've only really had three snow events: November twelfth, uh, that Christmas weekend of the Arctic Circle seemingly <laughs> coming down here, and then that Sunday where we got about six inches of snow. Other than that, it has been very lacking on that regard. The cold blasts have been very few and far between. Uh, very, very abnormal.
0: Okay, so what does all this uh, tell us? I guess I wonder, can you make predictions for next winter at this point? Does this tell us anything about what we're? I mean, are we gonna are we gonna make up for this with a uh, big kick in the pants there's, next there's winter? There's always
5: the the shoes gonna drop, right? The other shoes gonna yeah. drop. I think it more so tells us how our severe weather season is going to be, which is probably going to be a lot more active. We already had those tornadoes earlier this week. On Monday, we've got another threat today, and we're only on March 3rd. Generally, March, April, and May are severe weather months, and it's normally late March. So uh, I think I think we're going to have an active severe weather season. Uh, as far as winter, it's going to be hard to determine. I think that's going to be more determined by La Nina or El Nino, which we'll see develop over the next couple of months, which would then determine the pattern. But uh, this winter... Won't really give us much of a thought on what next winter will be,
0: Zach. I'm going to bring you into this because you're from <laughs> you're from up a little north. I mean, you're I, 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 we talked about how you you moved to the the warm south from northern yes. Ohio yes. for this job. Was this the winter you were expecting? I mean, what what the heck did you think? Were, were you surprised by this winter?
4: I, I was not surprised, actually. You know what? Uh, I, I am from the Cleveland area, uh, also known, you know, as the snow belt. Uh, I used to live in the snow belt. <laughs> yeah. So um, we used to get that great lake effect snow and oh, it would yeah. come and, and hit us right in the face every winter. Um, so, I was expecting a milder winter um this winter was certainly very mild for sure um wasn't shocking to me at all
0: okay so you didn't you didn't bring your sled and your your snowshoes or anything from up north and expect to use them down here.
4: No, I left that in my parents' garage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Very wise. Now, where are you from, Brandon? Are you from, from the pl-
5: suburbs of Chicago? But I moved here from Alabama, so this is a lot different than Alabama. But uh, Chicago, I'm used to the snow and cold, so I was expecting a little more.
0: There you go. And you, you've got all kinds of snow muscles you could use in this <laughs> in this regard. So, do you? Um, I have a question for you. What does all this say about? Puxatawney Phil. Is this groundhog completely unreliable? I mean, does... He's the groundhog- a rodent. That's yeah. what I'm going to say. I, I know, but I, <laughs> I will mean- bite my tongue on Phil. You're not...
5: No, no comment? Not, yeah, no comment.
0: Okay. But I mean, <laughs> should we brace for a cold spring? This groundhog said winter was going to keep going.
5: Uh, no, I... Uh, <laughs> I I don't think we're going to have a colder spring. I think it's going to be more active. We've already had the 70s here so far to start March. uh, And I do anticipate that it's going to be probably pretty nasty here this spring.
0: Nasty? Nasty storm wise. Oh, like this today is. Like
5: today, and we Uh probably have a couple more days like today.
0: Why, Brandon?
5: Why? (laughs) (laughs) Mother Nature's mad at us for some reason.
0: Yeah, she does seem mad. I mean, I've been doing everything right. I recycle. I, I mean, why is she so mad?
5: Yeah, I, I, climate is changing. I'm not going to get too far okay. down of those yeah, roads. But we're, uh, not... uh, we're seeing warmer than normal temperatures, especially with winter. It's our fastest warming season. So there's not as much of a, uh, a change of seasons. So we're starting to see more and more of that spring-like weather in the winter. And I think as that warms up, you know, severe al- uh, severe weather alley or tornado alley has always been down south. But as that warmth makes its way north, that's going to shift the climatological patterns further and further north. So now the Ohio River Valley is starting to become closer and closer to said tornado alley. Um, so
0: That's Once not 12, great news no. for you, Zach.
5: No, no. <laughs> no I, didn't, I didn't know I was
4: getting into that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. We love you, though. Don't leave us. Don't leave us. So... Um, Brandon, you've really got given us a lot of weather knowledge, which we deeply appreciate. Do you know anything about... Is this why everybody's allergies are so much worse? Oh,
5: definitely. Okay. Uh, growing season's starting a lot earlier. Um, the warmer you get, those plants start to germinate. They start to bud. I noticed my tree is starting to pollinate, uh, and those flowers are blooming. My hostas are already starting to pop up, as well as uh, a couple of my other flowers, so... As that growing season starts earlier, pollen season is going to be longer. That's another um, uh, unfortunate um, result of the warmer weather is that the pollen season and allergy season becomes longer. Uh, Also, like this is going to affect crops and plants along those lines as well because the growing season is only X amount of time. So... Well, and we
0: do have a gardening show coming up, so oh you, this is, yeah, we're going to get a lot of, a lot of calls and, and emails about that. Zach, did you discover allergies you never knew you had when you moved to Greater Cincinnati?
4: You know, I, I consider myself uh, pretty fortunate um, that I don't have too many uh, seasonal allergies. It doesn't affect me too much. I think my my big allergy is with cats. I love cats, but um, they <laughs> do get me, uh, me a little stuffy, um, but that's okay. Um, still love them, uh, but, uh, you know, not affecting me too much. Much, but um, I'm certainly glad that there was a short winter this year. Um, did get a little icy a couple of these days out here, which got a little um, got a little scary with some of the hills out here. I did see some uh, pretty wicked slides going on. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, I'm happy that spring is on the horizon. I'm I'm kind of over winter already.
0: Well, that's good. And I think if you really tried, you could get past the cat thing. My husband is technically <laughs> allergic to cats, but, and he says he hasn't breathed out of one of his nostrils for like 25 years, <laughs> but he's fine. So I think if you really tried a little harder, Zach, I mean— not trying to pressure you. I know you have a dog. It's good.
4: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the dog's not too bad. Cat's a little bit worse. Okay. Um, but you know what? I'd be willing to try anything. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> well, Brandon, is this should we? Is this the new norm? I mean, is this just kind of the the kind of winter we should maybe start expecting around here?
5: I think it could become that way, especially with the way our uh, climate has trended in the last several years, where we're. Seemingly in the top 10 of warmest year, year after year, uh, if not top five, Um, the warmer we get, uh, the more drastic swings we're going to start to see. You see a lot of these storm systems that are uh, causing a lot more damage, a lot more of these hurricanes are strengthening quicker. The water in the uh, oceans are warmer because of this. So uh, you see a lot more of those drastic uh, storm systems and even just... The winter swings, where you're, I think, we're going to have a lot more of those up and down peaks and valleys uh, than we were used to seeing even two decades ago.
0: Yeah, and that's true certainly around here, but is that true in the Chicago area where Chicago, you're from? Chicago,
5: southeast into the central plains. They had snow out in Vegas a couple of days ago, and out into California, they had six feet of snow burying people. So uh, you didn't see that as often. Uh, I mean, even look at Buffalo earlier this year, where they were uh changing football games because they couldn't get out of the house to go to the football game so more and more of the in the warmer you get the more amount of moisture you can have in the air uh Mm -hmm. that moisture content continues to go up which is going to lead to more of those 100 year floods more of those devastating hurricanes because there's a lot more water content within those systems uh which is just going to make it more devastating Okay. Well, (laughs) Not to be the bearer of bad news. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Thanks for ending on that note. I've been talking with WVXU reporter Zach Carrion and WCPO9 meteorologist Brandon Spinner. Thank you both so much for your time today.
5: Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. Our producer is Selena Reeder. Associate producer is Asiya Johnson. Technical director is Derek Smith. If you miss our program live, you can subscribe to Cincinnati Edition wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archives of our program online on WVXU.org. I'm Lucy May. Thanks so much for listening.